Hi, I'm Sergeant Vucetic and this is Race and Racism. Today we have two short readings, an article and a chapter. The first reading for today asks an important question that you're all thinking about. How might racism be unlearned? Uh, and the piece is relatively short, published in 2010 in Journal of Social Philosophy by three white guys. Daniel Kelly, an American, he's a prof uh, in the philosophy department, Purdue University. Uh, Luc Faucher, uh, who is uh, a prof at UCAM, I think he's Canadian. And Edouard Machery, who's a philosopher of science at Pittsburgh, I think he's French. I think um, all three uh, are interested in race from the perspective of psychology, cognitive science, and neuroscience. And I should preface this by saying that uh, there is a subfield in philosophy called the philosophy of race. It's about, what, 25 years old, maybe. All, all these three philosophers have contributed to this subfield, but not it's not their full-time job. Uh, so in this piece, they're asking a big question. They're reviewing what they think are the uh, three most concrete proposals made by philosophers and uh, social theorists about how race might be unlearned. And they're evaluating uh, those proposals and strategies in light of current work on racial cognition. So um, uh, what are the theories? What are the hypotheses, rather? First, um, the idea that disseminating scientific information about the biology of race will undermine racism. They call this the dissemination hypothesis. They're associated with the work of Naomi Zak, She's a philosopher. I mentioned her name earlier in the course. Uh, second, the idea that increasing interracial interactions will weaken various components of racism. They call this the contact hypothesis associated with the, the philosopher uh, Lawrence Bloom. He wrote this book, I'm Not Racist, But Three Dots, uh, 2002. And the third, uh, the proposal that instead of attempting to eliminate racist beliefs and prejudices, people should learn to control them. It's called the self-regulation hypothesis. They're associated with the work uh, of Lawrence uh, uh, Langbeer. So Kelly et al. define racism in a way that foregrounds its psychological aspects. Uh, a mental state, an emotion, belief, motivation, etc., or an action is racist if, it's, uh, if it is race-related and if it's morally problematic. So you, you'll find it in the footnote and note, number one. Um, the ontology of race is, of course, more broader than that, but they put forward some hypothesis associated with the psychological aspects of, of the field, right? Um, and so uh, empirical psychology covers everything from social psychology to, the, to, to evolved cognition. And sometimes we use the word psi sciences to, to talk about all of this. And they say that dissemination hypothesis might be the weakest of the three, at least in the short run. Education aimed at demonstrating that race is an illusion in the biological sense may not actually help eliminate racism because of the pervasiveness power of, of implicit biases, including the so-called genetic essentialist biases. Uh, in their words, uh, quote, much of the cognitive machinery underlying racial thought is shot through with affect and emotions, and as a result, people will be motivated to interpret scientific facts in a way that enables them to preserve racial opinions that are dear to them, end of quote. Related is the issue of prepared fears uh, and other uh, core emotional responses, resentment, envy, and so on, uh, to the other, which appear to be 
encapsulated or resistant to the otherwise consistent anti-racist belief expressed by the self. So they suggest that recent experiments have shown that people will take much longer time uh, to control negative emotional responses to faces uh, of racialized outgroups. Uh, and so this takes us back to this genetic essentialist bias, uh, the idea of r uh, racist emotions and affect. Uh, they say uh, these emotions, quote, might incline people to maintain some of their f false racial stereotypes and may very well motivate actions that are harmful to members of other races, even if those agents do not consciously intend that harm. Uh, end of quote. So what this means for an overall anti-racist strategy, the authors argue, is that education will be significantly more effective when combined and complemented uh, by greater and better, uh, quote-unquote, interracial interaction, as well as by the collectivization of self-monitoring and self-control. So they take the side of Bloom and Langbeer over uh, Zach, uh, if, if you were to to use these uh, philosophers and social theorists as representatives of uh, the three hypotheses they evaluate. Um, so, so this is, I mean, they, they end up on an optimistic note. Uh, op optimism is not the same as hope, and, and, and they give you reasons why, uh, uh, why you should take uh, empirical research uh, very seriously. So it's, uh, it's an interesting chapter. I've, I've, I signed it before in this class. Uh, usually get very good reactions to it, lots of reactions to it. Uh, because it's it's a nice, uh, effectively done review. But as I said, it's a very specific um, aspect of uh, both the philosophy of race and and the study of race, uh, psychological and tied to uh, a very specific definition of of, of uh, racism. So now we move on to the Linton chapter. Unlike Kelly et al., she focuses on the political, institutional, and social aspects of racism, not psychological aspects. She specifically. Uh, is interested in the way racism is used in everyday politics, electional campaigns, in the media, etc. And, for example, the revelation that the white prime minister of your country appeared in blackface multiple times, and, and the sort of outrage that, that happens in these situations. Uh, she is likewise interested in the reporting on such situations, uh, given how, most, how uncomfortable most quarters of the media have been uh, with talking about race and racism until very recently. Uh, and so... Uh, indeed, uh, race and racism are placed uh, in scare quotes. You see this uh, in CB on CBC even. You see it in the Global Mail, places like that. Uh, and they're often made subject to debatability, as she puts it. That's an obsessive attention to what counts as racism and who can define it. And you also see a ton of euphemisms. She even opens uh, her chapter with, uh, with, with, uh, with a quote from uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, the Democratic uh, House uh, representative in the United States. Um, and uh, yeah, essentially euphemisms such as racial undercurrents, racial connotations, racially tinged are used to describe what is sometimes referred to racial animosity, all quote unquote, but rarely simply as racism. So why? And this is what that AOC quote is about. So here's the puzzle that Lenten's addressing. The question is, uh, the question of when it's it's all right to talk about racism and when it's not has usually been answered by those with the least experience of it, uh, and because they deem themselves the most objective. Uh, so the, these are there, of course, cases when an allegation of racism is accepted as obviously true, and this is usually involving overtly racist statements or so stuff that Donald Trump spouts. But in many other situations, there is a quick pronouncement of 
Well, this is not racism. And who does that pronouncement? Well, it's usually uh, white people. And this is essentially the puzzle. Why is this the case? Uh, the, the title of her chapter is called Not Racism. Uh, and I think she was the first to come up with this term. It's paradoxical. Uh, there are a lot of paradoxes when we talk about race. Um, you, yeah, you, you, we, we'll, we'll discuss some of them. You know, racism and its doubles, uh, racism without racists, racism without race, old versus new racism. Uh, this will occasionally come up in the, in the literature. Let's just focus on what Linton uh, means by not racism, which is a 2017, uh, circa 2017 discovery she made in the UK context. Uh, she noticed that there's an almost daily ritual uh, of not racism declarations in uh, in in politics around, especially in the Western world. So not racism is packaged in a variety of ways, but generally it's about the redefinition of racism as universal ahistorical and a question of individual morality rather than than being structurally engendered. Right. So uh, something that that's individual and moral fall, uh, failing, but not not a structure. Right. Uh, so she thinks that this has to do with the conceptual development of racism and to its relationship with race, which, as we saw in the previous lecture, she defines as a complex assemblage that is intrinsically unstable, polyvalent, and mobile. Uh, so this idea of assemblage uh, also comes back. So the problem uh, does not only affect public debate, but it's actually internal to race scholarship. So people who assign uh, work on race and racism assign assign work that that, that that actually misses this point so this is a problem uh, and, and and that, that what the this, this entire chapter is about that so let's start with the, with the politicians uh, you hear them often referring to themselves as not having a racist bone in their bodies it's a cliche used by Donald Trump after he accused six women of color who are members of Congress of being savages uh, the aforementioned the aforementioned uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is one of the six, and you know about this case. Um, or when political scientists uh, sometimes come out and say that there's no such thing as, you know, uh, 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 ra uh, there is such a thing as a racial self-interest. The, the voters are not uh, racist, but they have a racial self-interest. White people have a self-interest. Or when they argue that the normal definition of racism uh, is, quote, irrational hatred, uh, fear or con or contempt for another group, and the quote. Uh, so anything short of that is not racism. So they have this this very maximalist definition of what constitutes racism in order to say, well, you know, the, the voters that I'm talking about in my work, well, they're not racist. They're just following their self-interest. Um, so Alana Linton argues that in many instances, past and present, racism. Uh, has been a rational choice for uh, white people. The fact that the white people benefit from racist arrangements, from slavery to protectionist immigration policies, is the main reason why it seems there is no post-racial future in sight. So this is what motivates her entire book. So she talks about the paradox or attention. On the one, on the one hand, you have a contemporary, our contemporary concept of racism, which is frozen in the past. Again, one of those terms she coined, she calls it frozen racism. And that's basically uh, a situation when, in which definitions of racism or, or ideas about uh, racism are held to apply strictly to only the most serious cases from history. So generally the Holocaust, uh, Jim Crow, and apartheid. Uh, on the other hand, it is 
detached from history when convenient and equated with generalized prejudice. And, and as we can see that in reference to anti-white racism, right? So this is a, perhaps a question for you. Is there such a thing, anti-white racism? How do we know uh, that anti-white racism exists? In this view, racism is a failure of individual morality that exists in society as a quote-unquote quote poison, something so toxic that to, to wrongly accuse someone of racism is a crime worse than the racism itself. Uh, and you hear this a lot in the UK, uh, you know, any country that has uh, very stringent uh, uh, laws on, you know, what constitutes uh, uh, liberalist speech. So... In the United States, you know, basically you can say a lot of things about a lot of people, and, and it's fine. Uh, in Canada, Canada is about, about a halfway house between the UK and, and the US. And the UK, you know, if you accuse someone of racism, um, you know, they'll, they'll send a lawyer uh, after you, and they'll say, well, you have to prove it. Uh, what did you mean by that? To the point that, you know, it's often said that it's easier to be racist than to call someone racist. I mean, it sounds paradoxical, but when you think about it, it, it it's true. Um, so, on that note, uh, so rather than understanding uh, that all racisms, while distinct, are entangled with each other, uh, we're encouraged to regard racism as organized on a, hier on a hierarchy of severity, so one that uh, perversely mirrors the power imbalance established by the idea of race itself. This is her argument, right? So, you know, you're saying, um, well, this is not racism, what's racism? It's the Holocaust. Uh, and you, you you say this to someone who's actually affected by racism, uh, and, sh and and she's she was writing this as a Jewish person, right? So she says the reason why anti-Semitism is seen as more representative of serious racism, quote unquote serious racism, is precisely because it has largely been seen as belonging to a more racist era in the past. So it's relegated to history, right? We know racism because what what happened in the 1940s is racism. This is nothing. Um, so. Uh, and then you have to contrast this to today, uh, the, when, for example, Facebook ruled that Islamo Islamophobic posts did not violate its community standards. Uh, and this shows that Islamophobia has seeped so much into the everyday as to be seen as something other than racism. We're going to have a whole session on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, comparing the two and seeing how they're entangled. Uh, and the same can be said for the racism facing black people, migrants, asylum seekers. In, Euro in Europe, you see so much anti-Roma racism. Um, uh, similarly, between 400 and 1,000 people drown in the Mediterranean while trying to reach the shores of Europe every year. Uh, but the rising death toll is never identified as caused by racism, or it's not racist. It's, or it's identified peripherally, but it's never mentioned in the mainstream. So why? Why not? Why not? So Lantin asks these questions. And, answer is, and her answer is, is this, uh, lack of uh, racial, the lack of racial literacy comes down to the fact that the dominant interpretation of racism uh, in public discourse are very far removed from what race, race actually is. And let's go to the late Stuart Hall, the centerpiece of a hierarchical system that produces difference. So we go back to the, to the definitions of race from the, from the last lecture. In contrast, racism is largely seen as a matter of intolerant attitudes or discriminatory practices. This is why much education about racism focuses on microaggressions and privilege checking over harder work of showing how a global regime of racial capitalism sorts the world into those who deserve to move freely and those who may die trying, right? 
So this is a very different perspective on what is racism, how to combat racism uh, than the one offered in the Kelly et al. piece, right? Because they're talking about education, uh, they're talking about contact, they're talking about self-regulation. No, she says, no, you, 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 it's not just, we can't just look at racism, we have to look at race. We have to be able to genealogize race. Genealogy is a methodology for studying history in a way that is political, it's effective, it's associated with uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, actually, of all people. We can talk about that in the discussion uh, forum. Uh, but this is where, where it gets interesting. So uh, many of you are familiar with the Atlantic columnist Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, and his line that race is the child of racism, not the father. Uh, I think he wrote that perhaps sometimes in 2016. Uh, and it's become very popular you know, on social media and so on. Lenten wants you to think more about this. Uh, because she says it was only after centuries of racial rule under colonialism, slavery, stuff we talked about last time, uh, that the term racism was introduced in the 20th century in the co context of rising German fascism and anti-Semitism. So this is why when we discuss roads must fall, McGill, McGill must fall, various decolonization agendas, etc., etc., some of you always point to Germany and say, here, this is an example of a country that has to learn how to deal with the past uh, in ways that are positive, right? You know, if the Germans could do it, we could do it here too, in Canada or in the United States or whatever. That's true if you accept that that particular past begins in 1933 and ends in 1945. Germany has decidedly not come to terms with its imperial past, uh, which included the imperialism of the Kaisers, right? You know, various genocides in places like Namibia. This is not part of German historical curriculum, um, much like it, you know, these types of things are, are barely discussed in British classrooms or French classrooms or whatever. Even in Canada, obviously, we don't, we don't discuss uh, the genocide of the indigenous uh, peoples. Uh, it's, the word itself is contentious. We're, we're going to even talk about that. Uh, later in the course. So furthermore, many of the people outraged by this fascist and Nazi forms of racism uh, were historically very comfortable with the long-standing idea that black people had inferior brains, quote-unquote. So you have proper anti-fascists committing racism. This is something we often forget about when we commemorate the Canadian sacrifice in World War II, etc., right? Or, you know, when we think about, oh, the place of India in World War II. They did not fight just against fascism. They fought against racist imperialism, right? Um, so these are complicated stories that are yet to be, that enter mainstream discussions of, say, what World War II meant. So what I like about this chapter is that Lenten identifies specific politicians and academics by name. So she knows she can be sued. By, by these people, but yet, you know, she's a good social scientist. Uh, she, she goes ahead and says, you know, here are some racists, uh, some people who are saying uh, ridiculous things. Um, you know, and these are all, you know, people on Twitter. These are, these are some of these, as I said, are political scientists running around. Um, and most, but not all, importantly, not all of them are white, uh, who go out of their way to opine what is or isn't racism or why, you know, we shouldn't use the word racist or why we shouldn't play the race card, et cetera, et cetera. And when I say we, they specifically mean minorities, as we call it, say in Canada, visible minorities should not play the, uh, 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 the race card. So this debate, it's, the point here is not that this debate is never about them. It's worse than that. She says that the white compunction to define what racism is, and especially what it is not, is a form of racist violence. 
it should be a basic principle that those who face racism should be permitted to define their own oppression. Now, this is a really strong statement, right? Just think about it. You don't get to define what is race, or, you know, if you can expand it. I've seen it being expanded in, in contexts that have nothing to do with race and everything to do with ethnicity, right? So does actually this apply to ethnicity too? Only those who are, I don't know, Bosniaks should define what is Islamophobia. You know, uh, a Christian person from Bosnia can, doesn't get to say what constitutes Islamophobia. Only a Bosnian Muslim person does. I've seen this, I've seen this argument travel uh, well beyond this discussion. So try, you know, put yourself in that in, in those shoes and and, tr- and and think about it a little more. So in, and she says, it should be a basic principle that those who face racism should be permitted to define their own oppression. In politics and society, the volume of commentary about racism from those whom it will never affect is understandably viewed with cynicism by indigenous people, Muslim people, uh, black people. You know, if you're facing decades of post 9/11 over policing. Or if you're facing the you know daily degradation of life, uh, or you know anti-blackness uh, racism, of course you're going to react cynically uh, to to the commentary about racism from white people. No, I mean that that seems uncontroversial. Um, and in fact, that's why we talked about positionality at the very beginning in this class. So to go back to my previous lecture on race. Um, remember that Lenten defines it as a technology of power for the management of human differences, whose ultimate aim is the maintenance of global white supremacy. So if we accept this definition of race, then there's no point in viewing racism as personal moral failing that can be corrected by self-regulation, dissemination, contact, uh, education, etc. So any of the three hypotheses or more uh, that those who study uh, racism in the, uh, in the context of um, empirical work on racial cognition uh, would identify. So, so yeah, I mean, this is, this is a place where you get to compare the two pieces, the Kelly et al. and Lenten directly, and tell me which one is right. Like, who's right here? I'm not saying that you should agree with one or the, and not the other. Just think about it and tell me which, which, which argument you find more convincing. And, um, yeah, I mean, so instead of expressing optimism that we should spend more time on on improving the contact or self-regulation and self-monitoring and self-control uh, or having greater, better interracial interaction, this is the Kelly et al. Uh, version, uh, uh, Lenten says to really stamp out racism, we need to begin with a commitment to deepening our racial literacy and for a majority of white society to depersonalize its reaction to racism. And when she says deepening our racial literacy, meaning you really have to understand the history of race, right? So the, the historical, social, and political construction and, 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 its, and its legacies uh, uh, today. Suffice it to say, uh, this argument leads uh, Lenten to provide a definition of racism. So she doesn't want you to think to, to think of racism as a, as a set of practices produced by the ideology of race. So this is not, this is not, at this point, she's not talking about psychology. She's talking about ideology, which is what perhaps you know 80% of your textbooks on race and racism are talking about. To talk about racism, you must explain the genealogy of of race is a system of rule that continues to this day. It follows then, racism is better understood as 
quote, beliefs, attitudes, ideas, and morals that build on understanding of the world as racially delineated. This definition comes uh, from her introduction, by the way, not chapter two, in case you're looking for the exact page. So in other words, uh, we must always work with both concepts, race and racism, because they're reliant on each other. And that's, that's the big point, right? So you can't have an article about racism um, without also going to the genealogy of race. So uh, think about it. Tell me what you think uh, and why. Uh, this is not the stuff you'll read you know, in the Global Mail or the student newspaper. Uh, and you know, it probably will take you some time to reflect upon some of these arguments. I really want to see your reactions on the discussion board and, of course, in your blog. Uh, so uh, looking forward. And thank you for listening, and have a great day.